Hello and welcome to the Book of Leaves podcast. My name is Cara and I am the host. Welcome to episode 47 of Book of Leaves, a podcast where I interview people who are doing something good for the planet and we take a leaf from their book to add to our own way of eco-friendly living. You're very welcome. I am Cara. I'm the host of this show. If this is your first episode, hello. Lovely to have you here and to all my regular listeners, you're very welcome back. Now, this is a long one, so I'm going to get into it very quickly, okay? This episode is with Neve Cassidy. Neve is a vet and I got in touch with Neve after seeing her story on why she went vegan on an Instagram account that I love run by someone I met through Extinction Rebellion and Animal Rebellion called Lorna Ann. Her and her friend Lou run this page on Instagram called Earthy Colini and they're always sharing loads of re- I've just I've learned so much they share farmer like organic farmers they share small businesses they they research uh, various topics share posts about them all the time it's one of those accounts that I'm always learning from and they had people submit their stories as to why they went vegan and I read Neve's story and said I want to know that and I want other people to know that story And I have this tiny little platform of a podcast that I could share it on. Now, we don't delve too much into the environmental side of veganism here. I'm very, very much aware that um, this, of course, is a podcast all about eco-friendly living. But just like when I have fast fashion episodes that aren't really focusing on the environmental side of things, it's more about the social justice and... The, the human aspect um, and the mistreatment of lives that goes on. I don't think anyone would disagree in saying that it is all interlinked. You know, how we treat the planet is all linked to how we're treating humans and how we're treating like non-human animals because it's our mistreatment, our perception of thinking any one being is better than another, um, colonialism, speciesism, there's so many issues at play and they're all feeding into each other but before we get into this kind of vegan journey I will give you just some environmental facts that we can use as a kind of like a bounce board to know that going into this conversation eating vegan is one of the best things that you can do for the planet and this conversation went on for almost two hours and I edited it down as much as I could but there's just there's so much in here and I think unfortunately we're barely touching the tip of the iceberg there is a lot that we don't talk about like I don't talk about Irish exports and we don't go into workers conditions too much in slaughterhouses you know there's so many more issues that um, exist in the animal agricultural industry it's a really heavy episode so you might need to take a a couple of breaks uh, to listen to the whole thing but please do stick through because I think it's so important that we know this I just think it's important to that we all just take our blinkers off for everything in life and and look at what's happening around us because if we don't understand it or we don't know what's happening we're never going like how can you change it and also there's because I'm 
in this episode talking about stuff that I find really uncomfortable and really upsetting. You will hear me like nervous laughing a lot and just please I'm not laughing at the suffering of any animal. It's just this thing that my body, a lot of people, human bodies do when uh, dealing with like excess energy is this nervous kind of laugh. So yeah, I just want to forewarn you with that. So before I introduce you to Neve. I want to just let you guys know some quick kind of environmental facts around animal agriculture, okay? 83% of all agricultural land on the planet, on Earth, is for animal agriculture. 83% of all land used for farming is animal agriculture and that produces less than 20% of the calories that we eat. The amount of land is huge. It is the leading cause of rainforest deforestation and it is the single largest driver of habitat loss in general, animal agriculture specifically. Even if it's local, even if you're you're buying organic, local, grass-fed, only 2% of, say for example, lamb Emissions come from transport. For beef, it's 0.5%. Typically across the board, it's always less than 10% when it comes to to transport. It's how it is farmed that matters. And of course, regenerative is better, but that still doesn't address the amount that people are eating needs to drastically reduce. And also regenerative farming, I mean, one of the ways that sequesters carbon is in the soil and after a couple of decades soil peaks it can only store so much carbon and then you're left with these cows that are now just in a constant surplus of of emissions you know there's a lot of resources out there and there's a lot of you know conflict information and a lot of you probably be really interested in regenerative farming i do recommend there's an amazing podcast, um, I talk about it all the time, called Plant Proof. And episode 104 with Dr. Nicholas Carter is just blew my mind. And it really goes into the specifics of carbon emissions from your food and from your diet. So I would really recommend checking that out. Um, I haven't even mentioned um, acidification or water usage or pollution and agricultural runoff, uh, eutrophication, I think that's how you say it. That's when like there's so much nitrogen from fertilizer going into water bodies and being washed into streams that you get this algae bloom. It covers the surface of water, sunlight can penetrate, oxygen can't go in or out and it creates ocean dead zones and that's like a huge problem in Ireland actually. There's a lot of of uh, eutrophication, 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 anyway there's a lot of that in Ireland unfortunately and uh, we need to get rid of that so no one has to mispronounce it anymore and also so it's not bad for the environment but I haven't even without going into those statistics like if the world shifted towards a plant-based diet we could reclaim 75% of agricultural land and that's the size of China, Australia, United States and all the European Union states put together that is how much land that we are using that we are losing so many calories by feeding all of these animals to get to the size that they need to be when we could just stop doing that anyway please do listen to episode 104 plant proof 
blew my mind and if you have any resources send them on to me. There's another talk that I attended and my first Dublin Veg Fest in 2016 by Bite Size Vegan and the talk was called It's Not Like That Here and it was specifically aimed at Ireland because we have a huge issue in Ireland of because we see cows and sheep in fields that we think you know what they're being treated well so it's all okay but we have practices here that are legal and what's legal does not mean it's morally right. Only recently gay marriage was legalised. The law and the courts are not always right. You will know what's right most of the time from your emotional and personal reaction when you hear or see what's happening in front of you. If you find it hard to to kill an animal, there's a reason why. So, on that light note, you guys, if you enjoy this podcast, please do share it with a friend. Um, I have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash book of leaves and a buy me a coffee. And you can also support me um, directly through Acast now as well. Okay, so here is Neve. I hope you guys enjoy is not going to be the right word, but I hope you get something out of this. And I'll catch you after for the best thing, which are calls to action, things we can do to stop what's happening. Okay, see you after. Um, Neve, thank you so much for coming on the Book of Leaves podcast. I feel like I'm looking at some kind of Grey's Anatomy superstar who's like, I've just come in from surgery. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me, Tara. I'm a big fan. Oh, I'll stop now. Um, I saw your story on Earthy Colini's Instagram post about why you went vegan. And I was like, that is a story that I really need to hear. And I really want my listeners to hear um so I got in touch then with uh Lorna Ann and was like please can you tell that person uh, that anonymous person that I want them on my podcast and I'm so glad that you accepted it and that Lorna Ann helped me do that so thank you so before we get into I guess your journey on veganism can you introduce yourself a little bit just tell us a little bit about um where where you are (laughs) where you're from and uh, where you grew up and that kind of stuff yeah, uh, so my name is Neve. I'm from Salvage and Kildare, and I graduated last year from veterinary medicine in UCD. So I studied there for five years, um, where you study, you know, all the species. Like it's a good mix of small animal, farm animal, equine, and a bit of exotics as well. Um, although they still are quite alien to me. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, study studied there for five years and graduated in June 2020. And <laughs> I've been uh, working since then in for in mixed animal practice for four months, which was a mix of everything. So cats, dogs, cows, sheep, not so much pigs because they're more of a specialist thing. And then I moved, switched to a different role in the past couple of months, which is mainly horse focused with some small animal as well oh and today you were helping a donkey with a scratching problem I was yes um did some (laughs) 
went to visit a donkey. He was 34 years of age. So donkeys live till they're really old. They can live till 50, yeah. And um, he just has some ball patches. So uh, I took some skin scrapes and we're going to look at them under the microscope tomorrow, probably. Oh my God, that's your your job. Your job is the one my parents wanted me to get because they saw how much I love animals. Um, and they were like, you could you'd be a vet. But then you've also done surgery this morning and I just couldn't. I mean, I, I, I'd be terrified that I wouldn't know what is what when I'm, <laughs> once I like cut open an animal. Like, do you ever get that? No. I- <laughs> oh, definitely. I do get that. You know, there are moments of panic. <laughs> But it's great to have experienced uh, bosses and mentors to give you a hand if you need it. So that's a help. Yeah. Good. And that's, yeah, you can, that's just a little um, thing to just relax any pet owners out there. Don't worry, Neve is not by herself <laughs> wondering what's the heart and what's the kidney in your dog. I love it so much. Um, But yeah, so we're going to chat, probably go into some heavy and sad topics in this interview. But yeah, we're going to chat about your journey to veganism. Um, So obviously you studied veterinary, but like I'd say growing up, did you go into veterinary because you loved animals? Yeah, that was it really. And um, horses were always my favourite animals. So that was my main interest and the main reason I started but then the more I studied it the more I was interested in everything else as well and so that's where I started from and you definitely do have a bit of a romantic notion in your head of what it's going to be I think all 18 year olds probably do you go in you you start and you're so naive you haven't a clue but um, (laughs) uh, that's yeah that's exactly why I wanted to study veterinary and I'm really glad that I did, but I've come out of it very different than I thought I than I thought I would, you know. Yeah. Um. So, at what point did you first get kind of on site experience in your studies? Then. So right from the beginning, in first year, from our second semester in first year, we go out to um, a research farm that UCD have, and we do practicals out there. And um, so when I first started and. The first day going out onto the farm, I was very much a meat eater, milk drinker, egg eater. If you told me that I would end up being vegan, I would have laughed in your face and said, would you ever cop on? Not a, ch- not a chance. And these cows, like, look at them out in the field, they have the best life and they have a humane death and it's absolutely fine. Like, just, I would have, would have had no time for any of that, you know, absolutely no mm-hmm. time. And um, that's where I was at. And I'd been talking, there were a couple of, the couple of classmates that were vegetarian. And I even thought to myself, what are they doing here? Like, this is the wrong, you know, this is the wrong career for them. You have to be tough and you have to know what the real world is like. You know, that was very much my attitude. Yeah. And then it was when, from the very first practical class we had, was when I had like that first thought in my head of oh <laughs> you know this isn't what I thought it was yeah right and what happened where were you we were dealing with the calves so newborn dairy calves from the milking herd they have a, a it's a commercial milking herd where they do sell the milk but a lot of uh, research is done on the farm you know they research a lot of the grass and and do a lot of tests on the cows and like cows and all that. Now it's all very 
it's all done very well and the cows are quite well looked after. Um, but it, I feel like so stupid even admitting this, but I never would have thought of the calves or where the milk came from. Like, as in, as in, you thought that they produced milk, um, not like just without calves. Didn't even think. Obviously, you know, in the back of my head, I know that a pregnancy has to happen for milk to be produced, but that didn't cross my mind. I was, I, I think I was actually the same because I remember thinking cows had to be milked and I was convinced that you, they get pregnant once have one baby and then you just keep milking them and the milk keeps coming that's what I thought happens so I'm um, we're I'm wrong I was wrong in that I'm right in saying you need do you, they need to keep having calves like if you like you if you just they have one will they eventually dry up yeah they need to have a calf every year um so I you were ahead of me in there I it didn't even the thought never even entered my head and then I felt really I felt so stupid being out there with my classmates and a lot of them would have come from farming backgrounds and that's why they were in the course and um I remember standing there in we were in a in the yard and there were pens either side and the pens were full of calves or maybe six calves in each pen and looking at them I thought in my head they were about two days old and my background I guess would be more horses and I'd be used to seeing mares and foals you know with the mares with their foals and seeing that strong relationship and strong bond that they have and if you go near the foal the mare will kill you you know that maternal that maternal bond is one of the most amazing things that I've seen like you know it amazes me every time in any animal so that's what I was used to to the foal being on the mare and the foal growing up beside her and then I just thought to myself, I saw all these calves and I said to the our like teacher, I guess, I said, sorry, where where are all the mothers? Like I actually said that. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, the mothers, they've given birth now, so they've entered the milk and herd. And that's when it just dawned on me, you know, that they were separated at birth. I just had no idea. And that was just so normal for I felt everyone else there. Like that was just how the way it has to be because obviously there's 300 plus cows. You can't have 300 cows plus 300 calves going along into the milking parlour. There's just not enough room and it's so messy. So it's just easier to separate them and uh, rear the calves on powdered milk replacer and cheaper that way too to use the powdered milk rather than the whole milk. So in fairness, the calves, they're clean and dry. They don't know any different, but... That for me was the first, my first thought of, oh, I don't really like how that's done. Yeah. Okay. So that's when it started to kind of maybe niggle at your brain. We'll probably go back to dairy again. But what was the first thing that you gave up? The first thing I gave up was pork after I did a total of three days work experience on a pig farm in my first year Christmas holidays just three days but it was enough (laughs) I was really happy to be finished the three days because we all have so we all had to do placements on different different food systems so the rule was one week of pigs two weeks of horses I actually kind of forget now but you know a few weeks and everything yeah a lot of people don't even do the pig one and when we started in in the college some of the people in the older years would say oh yeah don't bother with that one just get someone to sign that off for you it's like really horrible like you don't want to do that my dad's friend like said oh I know a, I know a, there's a pig farm across the road from where I live you can 
I always say to him, you can come in for a few days. So I thought, oh, great. Like I was real, you know, enthusiastic and eager to to learn. And um, I went in, it was in winter. And so I went in big jacket on me, overalls, wellies, expecting it to be cold. Like, you know, I was going to a farm when I got there. It was completely indoors. I got in sweating straight away. All the clothes came off. It's It's really warm and the temperatures kept really really hot so the pigs they don't have to spend any excess energy keeping warm like all their energy can just be to put on fat very dark place like just visually the lights were not good it's really dark no windows horrible smell the pigs just smell I guess and um, my first my first job was to go around with one of the workers there to the farrowing shed now I, I didn't even know what the word farrowing meant but it the sows give birth so it would be like the, the equivalent of a calving or a foaling you know a foal a calf a lamb yeah. for a pig it's farrowing so and um, they have different farrowing sheds where the sows go in they go in there the week before they give birth and they're fed accordingly so it's all computerized and the computer will increase the feed each day because um the closer she gets to farrowing the more energy she needs and then once she farrows she's producing milk so her energy plane has to continuously go up so the computer automates that and is feeding her the right amount every day so my first job was in the morning to go in with one of the workers and um take out the dead piglets and count them there were 10 10 cells in each farrowing shed and they're in crates they can stand up or they can sit down but they can't turn around or move at all and there's metal bars over their head and a little area then for the piglets to lie separately so the reason behind it is because sometimes the sow will lie down on some on one or two of the piglets and she could... Yeah, because she's got no room to go anywhere else. Hello? Um, yeah. Yeah, but that's the the reasoning. So the sow is kept totally confined and can't interact with the piglets or anything and her food bowl is just in front of her where she's fed every day and you go in and they're all really scared of you and they jump up and they're really vocal and I hate that they just see you as this like monster but that's really what you are I guess to them and you go in and count all the the dead ones from each litter and then you'll record out of maybe 10 piglets two are dead or you know you go along so each sow you're recording her uh, more the mortality rate of the piglets and that was my first job and some of them the runs of the litter you know would be really small and weak or nearly dead and the worker she just um, grabbed one it was like nearly dead and she just grabbed it and whacked its head off the ground and killed it and that would be really common for the weak ones just to be just to be killed and so I just have a memory of going along with a wheelbarrow and putting all the dead piglets into it and um empty tipping it into a big skip and it would be the skip would be emptied once a week or whatever oh my god i remember reading a book called eating animals by jonathan saffron voyer i don't know if you've read it's it's, it's so good but it's based in america and one problem i had reading it is is reading all of these things that they would do to animals and you think they don't do that over over here but that that's one thing he described was picking up animals and 
whacking whacking them hitting them to 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 kill them or knock them unconscious um and horrible things that they would do to to pigs just to like get their frustration out and that's but oh my god that's such a horrific how did like how were you were you okay after that like that's that's like a horrible thing to see yeah there were there were other things that I'll talk about in a minute but I I was very good at hiding it and I just wanted to make a good impression and show them that I was a good worker and eager to learn and all of that so I just went along with it and I never called anyone out or on anything you know I was still just a little first year and yeah you know I never really voiced my concerns or anything I just got on with it but definitely it affected me and I did have I had nightmares after that experience of like weird dreams of pigs it was yeah a weird time but I never ate pork again after that and the, that very first day what I had with me for lunch was a roll with ham on it and I was eating it there like oh god <laughs> wow yeah I'm pretty sure that was the last time I ate a pork product but other things then to the piglets that that is routine would be to tail dock them and um, so you you basically just burn the ta- their tails off so that was one of my jobs as well. Um, in fairness, they let me do a lot while I was there. I was only there. Yeah, fuck. Sounds like it. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. You know, they wanted me to get experience. but So I was allowed to do that. Um, and they're, they hate it, obviously. And they're, they're um, kicking and squealing. The reason they do it is because when the pigs get older, then they bite each other's tails because... They're in such a barren environment. They're just in pens with no bedding, nothing to stimulate them. And pigs are such curious animals and they love rooting in, in dirt and um, they love gathering things and they love, you know, interacting with their environment. So when they're just in pens with nothing to bite or play with except each other, it, that's what happens. They just bite each other's tails off and that can leave them with a big a big abscess there at the base of their tail so you can see the argument for it that it's a lesser of two evils to to tail dock them yeah without and they don't need anesthetic if they're a certain age is that right yeah at the pigs with the pigs they're done at a few days old and um, and it is the law that tails of pigs should not be docked unless there is a problem with tail bite abscesses which is a bit of a loophole because that's every pig farm ever, you know. They're going to have, of course, there's going to be problems with that because there's no environmental enrichment there, nothing to stimulate them. So, of course, they're going to bite each other's tails. Instead of creating a a suitable environment for them, it's just resolved that way by just um, getting rid of the tail from the get-go. Yeah, cutting their tail off, yeah. That's horrible. And do they have practices about pulling teeth as well here? Um, yeah, so you clip, you clip the teeth, sharp little teeth, at the same time that you do the tail docking. Because the pigs are, they're born with these really, these really sharp teeth, the piglets, and they can, they cause lacerations on the teeth of the sow and they, they hurt her. So in fairness, I do see why they do that. I didn't like doing it. I tried it once and the pig was squealing screaming in my hand and I just gave it back I was like I <laughs> I was really slow at it you know what I mean I wasn't as quick as the workers who they're really good at it because they do it all the time so I felt I was causing more distress to the pig to the piglets because I was taking so long to do it so yeah. it's too distressing. I just I find it it's strange I don't blame you for not being able to do it oh my god but I I do find it strange that 
I guess just the whole thing is kind of hypocritical that they do that to mind the mother while keeping her in a crate you can't turn around in. You know, there's so many I know kind of just little hypocrisy things. But yeah, it's a it's a rights animal rights versus welfare issue. I don't so, know the answer to that one, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, no, you don't this is this is the, the unfortunately the food system that, that we're in and that we just um people don't realise like, you know, our grandparents were eating pigs from back gardens or farms or whatever and now people like just presume that's still kinda how it's done and you watch Babe and you're like, Oh yeah, that's where the pigs that I'm eating the bodies of come from. Yeah, I guess how would anyone know you know, before I went there I hadn't a clue. I never thought about the fact that I would never see pigs in fields that they're always inside just you know the thought never entered my head and so I understand why people would just never think of it you know why would it oh yeah yeah definitely um so after you left the the pig farm in a traumatized state um your dreams of becoming a pig farmer uh were dashed and uh, was it a sheep farm that you went to next? Yeah, the next placement I did was in the following spring. So still in my first year, I did two weeks of lambing. So when the when the yos are giving birth to the lambs, it all it always happens. It's seasonal, so it's done in uh, March, April every year. So this time of year now, there'll be lot, lots of yeah, lambs. Yeah, there's loads of lambs being and, born now. Yeah. And that was a big contrast. Really enjoyed lambing. It was so different and I just appreciated the yos and, and her lambs being outside and watching lambs run around with the with the yo. I was, t- I was talking to the farmer there. We were going around on his quad bike one day and I was telling him about the pig farm and how different it was and how this was so much better and he he said yeah well of, of course you know you, you can't exploit a, a yo the same way you can exploit a sow because a yo is only going to give you one or two lambs a year where the sow her pregnancy is um less than four months and she'll produce a massive litter of piglets so the number of piglets that she's producing a year is so much higher than the mm. number of lambs EO is producing. And, you know, that's why pork is so cheap because you can just mass produce it like that. Whereas you can't do that to the, to the EO. It has to be extensive and she can only give you one, one or two, maybe three or four if she's very prolific lambs a year. So it has remained that way. <clears throat> and sheep farming has got bigger and there are some farmers now that will have hundreds of hundreds of sheep but it's still a much smaller scale than the likes of pig farming and I had a great experience lambing and the farmer really looked after the sheep very well and knew them very well Mm. and it was much more old old school I guess and they have a good life a short life (laughs) yeah that's the thing like they're so young yeah, they're only six months when they're killed. But you think they're they're the best looked after out of all of them? I do, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, I think I never ate lamb growing up as a child because I heard lamb, like, you know, sausages, you can disconnect. But if it's called lamb and my I've got lambs in my neighbor's field, I was like, no way am I eating a baby animal. Like, get the boat. Yeah, the one thing, though, about lamb, which because they're so small, after, like, beef, and lamb are like the top two environmentally bad ones. And this farm that you were on, 
was that for for lamb or what and what happens with the sheep is that wool or mutton that that they'd be exploited for yeah so the yos would would go in lamb every year so the yos would be kept you know you might have a yo that's seven or eight years of age like she'll be kept for years until she stops producing lambs until her fertility declines and then the then when they get to that stage then they're cold so just sent, uh, sent for slaughter right yeah once they stop being productive or if they have any problems sometimes they might have problems with um prolapsing would be a common one some relatively where the uterus is prolapsed out through the vagina um, and then they can have trouble having lambs in the future or different sometimes lameness problems foot problems you know if uh, as they get older they tend to get more health problems so then they're usually cold then and some of the female lambs would be kept as replacements and um, but all the lambs the business is that all the lambs are born in March time and then six months later they're sent to the factory and then the yos are in the autumn time they're bred again to the ram so they go in lamb again and then a year later they give birth again so they give birth once a year so I wonder where all the lamb because I work in a supermarket and people buy lamb quite frequently and I wonder where that comes from out of season like we get our you know our strawberries from Morocco so because usually it's always like Irish lamb so be curious to see where that comes from there's a market for early lamb you know the Easter lamb that's quite popular those would be yos that would have given birth in January but um, that's a bit trickier because it's not their natural time to give birth. So you'd have to artificially induce them to come to cycle and ovulate with hormones um, earlier in the year. Okay, so that, that's, okay. done, that's done quite commonly. And then you'd have, you'd have the lambs being born at Christmas time or in January and then they're like they're ready a bit earlier. I see. And are sheep and pigs always like artificially inseminated the same way you hear about dairy calves being like it? Like it's all, they never put males in with them. It's always semen, isn't it? With the pigs, yes. Um, okay. The pigs is always semen. And I, I did some AI, some of the artificial insemination at the pig farm I was at, um, where there were 90 of them a day done. <laughs> well, like every, every day? Yeah. What? How big was that pig farm? Um, over seven hundred breeding sows. Mm-hmm. Huge. Just, just breeding sows. So then they'd have all the pigs sent that they're actual raising. So there'd be thousands, probably. Oh yeah, huge. And that's most pig farms are really big because you know pork is so cheap, so it has to be done on a huge scale to be profitable. <sighs> yeah. And mm-hmm. um, with the the yos, that that would be natural. So you just put a ram out in the field with the yos. One ram, all the sheep to himself. <laughs> you give, I think, I think 50 yos per ram would probably be Jeez. a Jeez! Yeah. <laughs> all right, busy fella. Um, right, so you didn't mind the sheep farm. And was it the, um, a chicken, did you go to a chicken factory after that? I didn't actually go to one, um, but we, we studied a good bit about poultry production. Um, so studied about both meat production for poultry which would be the broiler the broiler farms where they have just sheds for 
meat producing animals. So their lifespan would be 40 days, I think. And they grow super fast. They grow crazy, crazy fast. And their genetics has been manipulated so much, you know, naturally they would not grow that fast. And if you Google broiler chicken 1970 compared to a broiler chicken in 2020, they'd be you know double the size if not more the way the genetics has been engineered is it's impressive but in a in a bad way it's really impressive that humans have done that but to the detriment of the the chicken they grow so fast yeah like there's a way of being scientifically amazing like the pork because i've seen like photos where they grow so fast that it's so unnatural to them that their legs can't keep up and their legs break underneath their own weight and they can't move or walk and yeah it's just it's like you know again you imagine chickens and you imagine that the same kind of hens which actually very rarely (laughs) exist because the egg laying ones are so skinny and the broiler the meat ones they're just so yeah they look real deformed god love them Mm -hmm. yeah it's very much two distinct pathways that those commercial chickens are either bred for meat production or bred for egg laying so once they selected for egg laying, the meat production genes are quite bad. So they're really skinny and don't have a lot of meat. So they're really not worth anything for poultry meat. But they produce a crazy amount of eggs, you know, an egg every day. Where I think jungle fowl naturally in the wild would produce 12 eggs a year. Yeah, it's sort of similar to the human cycle. Like, So you didn't actually work on a on a chicken farm but do you know much about like the free range side yeah well the free range it would be a little bit different as in they have to have a certain amount of space for so many days of the year so it's definitely an improvement on battery hens and hens that don't have any free range but they're the same exact same genetics so still producing one egg a day which depletes their calcium stores quite rapidly because the eggshell is really high in calcium and a lot of those hens get osteoporosis and would have very very poor bone density when it comes to their year their two years so that's the same with free range and obviously the male chicks are just like crushed crushed at birth and that's the same whether it's free range or not just disposed of like that it's not great and they only get a, a year or two out of laying and then their time's up because how could you go on doing it you know uh, like well how long do chickens live for usually like oh it would it would be 10 plus years i'm pretty sure yeah um i think eggs were probably the thing i had really put a narrative in my head about because i loved eating eggs oh my god so much like uh, the the things I would buy every week I'd buy a block of cheddar milk my cereal my toast my beans and egg and I would make like a six egg omelet loved them had it convinced in my head that they lay the eggs anyway and that you know they're unfertilized so it's fine and then I was like right and the male chicks well they'll be sent to the meat chicken meat factory and I don't have anything to do with that because I'm a vegetarian and I convinced myself convinced myself and then it wasn't until that I was like right I'll go vegan and then I looked into it and I was like wow I was absolutely 
making all of that up. Um, so I think that's the one that I definitely had the most. Yeah, I definitely told myself the most stories about because grinding up baby male chicks al- when they're alive, they just the only lot like it's in law that you can kill them that way. They just have to be less than 72 hours, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can see videos of it online and they're like running away from the edge of the belt. Yeah, we were showing a video of it in a lecture before and it was pretty uncomfortable, I think, for everyone. But mm, then you yeah. kind of just don't talk about it. Wow. Yeah. Um so did you was that like did you choose to stop eating chicken at at that point yeah and eggs as well I just once you stop justifying it to yourself it's easier yeah something broke through the blinkers for me like so once that happens I was like okay I can't like because I know what my own morals are or whatever Yeah. yeah it wasn't even like I actively said oh I'm not eating chicken anymore it would be I'd go home and my mom would make me a chicken dinner and I'd be eating it and thinking to myself I do not want to eat this and it was a struggle for me to eat it and then eventually I just have to say no I, I can't eat that anymore yeah and how how are um chickens killed because they're so small and there's so many of them like I imagine chicken farms like even the free range ones you're talking thousands of chickens most of the time yeah by far the most common one in mm-hmm. Ireland is uh, electrocution by a water current so they're hung up upside down shackled by their feet and they tend to freeze when they are hung up like that because they're so stressed and don't know what's happening so their reaction is just to freeze so that was seen as oh this is a an efficient way to do it they all just stay still most of the time so they're they're hung up by the feet on on a conveyor belt moved along and their head is passed through a water bath which has an electric current running through it. That's what stuns them. So they go unconscious at that point and then at the end when they come out of that there's I think it's either automated plus a manual uh person with a knife as well to slit the throats then once they're unconscious from the water bath. So I think there's an an automatic knife to slit their throats and a person there to slit the throats of the one that's missed by the like robot. The two major problems that I have with that is the first one is when they're shackled upside down and birds don't have a diaphragm like mammals do. So they don't have a separate abdominal and thoracic cavity. So when they're hung upside down, all of their organs, just gravity just pulls them to the you know nearest to their heart so that's severe pressure on on their cardiovascular system and severely stressful for them horrendously stressful for them yeah then the second issue is when they're passed through the water bath some of the chickens might not be tall enough to actually reach the water that they might their heads might not be fully immersed and it is common for them to come out the other side still conscious so when their throats cut they're still fully conscious oh my god and this i presume is where organic and free range like they all have to go to the same slaughterhouse don't they Mm -hmm. yeah just the fact that you can buy a whole uh chicken for for three euro in work and it's large and i literally i'm pulling them across and i yeah i find it 
not funny, but I kind of note how the way that the packaging is, they always cover the hole where the neck, the chicken's head has been chopped really? off. Yeah, they never, they don't show that. And the way that the legs, the cut off feet and the legs are all folded, like they kind of hide the anus that they'd be stuffing and all after. Or what? Well, I don't, I've never stuffed a chicken, thank God. But they never show that the hole where their head's been cut off. And I think because it's like, you know, people are funny. I remember my, my brother finding a feather on his chicken and freaking out when I was a child. Freaking out. Or they'll find a vein or like a chicken head in their KFC bucket. I just... <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, people just don't link the, you know... You don't want to read that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was a person that I remember reading online that they went um, vegan or at least stopped eating chicken when they got, a, they went, they were huge KFC. Oh my God, I think it was Earthling Ed actually. Or was there? I was watching his like vegan story recently. I don't know. Oh, me too. Well, I think it was him. Yeah, but he went and he was like, I got a box of like, I don't know, like 32 chicken wings or something. And he was like, so at least, at least 16 chickens had to die for me to eat this one box like 16 could you could you even imagine going back in time to your great great grandparents house and be like I'm gonna have 16 chickens for dinner they would make one chicken last you know the week possibly depending on how big your Irish Catholic family was you know that's just so so nuts um and people be giving out oh stop trying to take the meat away from us it's so unsustainable not to mention horrific for the animal but just yeah crazy and then it becomes a big issue in terms of disease as well for them you know obviously if you're going to be sharing that airspace so many so many chickens in such a small space and then you have the problem of routine antibiotic use. Yeah, we haven't even touched on that. Jeez. And of course, the pandemic, like avian avian flu, like zoonotic pandemic. So, yeah, diseases that can they transmit from animals like that. When you're going into like a pig farm that size or a chicken farm that size and you're all in this enclosed space, no wonder you can you can get th- this from animals. And this is why it wrecked my head when people were blaming COVID on wet markets and saying it's because of the wet markets and the conditions that they're in, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And we could so be the breeding ground. Any factory farm could be the breeding ground for the next uh, pandemic, which we unfortunately have lots of uh, factory farms in Ireland. But yes, antibiotics, do you know much about their use in Ireland? And like, are they are they used preventively or to, or to treat? Um, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert, but I definitely have a good bit of, ex- of experience with it. And with, with pigs and poultry, they are used as prophylaxis, so as preventative. Um, typically with poultry and the drinking water, it's, um, you know, put into the drinking water just to prevent uh, typically respiratory disease. And in pigs also, it's put into the feed and not so much with uh, cattle or sheep. You, it would be more of a, a specific animal problem. You know, if there's an animal, say with a, a diarrhea or pneumonia or something, you will get a call call out to examine that animal and treat as appropriate. And it's it's much more specific to the animal. But there still is a lot of antibiotic biotic use in farm animal practice. Yeah, I think the majority of the 
antibiotics. I think it's something like 80% or something of antibiotics are given to animals all over the world. Now in Ireland, it's pro- it's probably smaller. But yes, holy God. <laughs> I feel like we need to take like a break every so often. Um, but to push through, because... <laughs> Uh, I want to I wanna get um, the whole kind of, I need to get the whole picture in. So did you spend time on a beef farm as well and a cow, cow farm for beef? Yeah, so the spring after my lambing, so the following year when I was in second year, I used to do every weekend on a nearby dairy farm for the springtime. And there was a beef farm associated with it. One of the One of the guys that worked there had some beef cows too, so... I would kind of go between both and you know I don't want to paint farmers in this horrible negative light you know because they really do care about their animals and I know it's in a distorted kind of a way and at the end of the day it is a business for them but especially the okay the pigs there was there was zero um zero level of care there it was pure money making business yeah. Um, but the sheep and sheep and cattle in this country, they're cared for by by the farmers. They really are. The dairy farm that I was at and the, the beef farm, you could tell they, they loved them and they'd go petting their cows and they knew every cow. They knew all of her habits and her little individual, you know, their personality traits. And one, one of the days I was in the shed with the beef cows and the farmer, and he was showing me one cow and called her by her tag number. I think it was like 2111 or something. <laughs> uh, so she didn't have a name, but he had her for 18 years. She was 18 years of age. And he said she produces a fine calf every year. And he loved this cow and she came straight up to him and he was petting her. And he said, oh, this will probably be her last one now. And I was kind of saying, oh, isn't that so sad? You know, you've would you not just keep her as a pet? And he said, oh, I'd love to just keep her. And he said, but what do I do? Do I wait until she gets sick and dies and I pay to get rid of the body? Or do I send her to the factory before she gets sick and get paid 500 euro for her? And, you know, at the end of the day, that's his livelihood and that's his income. And so that's just the reality of it, which for me is not acceptable. But for him, that was acceptable. Yeah. And similar to the sheep, you know, they it is bittersweet for them to send their lambs to the factory, definitely. Yeah. No, I do I do think they're definitely like what farmers do as a livelihood, like they work, they're pretty much twenty four seven. So hard for them to go on holidays. They milk the their cows if they're on a dairy farm like twice a day, up at the crack of dawn. And then on top of that, you have governments and meat plant people and whatever big supermarket chains not paying them enough like and they're they're living off subsidies so I do I do definitely empathize that even if they were finding it hard and like emotionally difficult or or just really struggling to make ends meet that the system that we have and that the government provides just doesn't allow for that like the government is just pushing and pushing and pushing expansion and to do everything you know like they do with pigs you know to mass scale it so that they it can be cheaper to make and we export it and make loads because like 80 percent of the food that we 
make here is exported and it's always like beef and dairy and liquid or powder gold now is our baby formula been sent to China so there's so many things at play I understand when like animal activists and vegans or anyone can be upset with farmers for kind of like facilitating it but they're also stuck in a system a lot of the time as well and again they were all raised to think this is normal yeah I definitely I do empathize with them not the pig farmers though sorry (laughs) but um beef cows they're like a different breed and I presume they like do the same kind of thing probably where they have a calf every every year or so and in beef I imagine they just raise both of them like male and female I mean yeah they'll have one the cows will have one calf a year and they'll raise that calf so it's not taken off them like it is with the dairy the dairy cows so it's kept on them until they're at the age to be to be weaned when they start to stop drinking the milk anyway and they're eating mostly solid feeds and again one one calf a year yeah and do you know how much grass they'd be fed like are they because we again have that idea of grass-fed Irish beef yeah it is a seasonal grass-based system in Ireland it's the most profitable is to have them on grass because I mean for the farmer to use their own field full of grass that's the cheapest way to, to feed their animals is off grass so they do try to maximize that absolutely and they'll cut they'll cut grass for silage to feed during the winter so they're at grass for as long as possible you know as soon as the ground starts to dry up and the grass is good they're out of grass and back in then in the winter when the grass growth is poor and the conditions are pretty bad and then they're housed over winter and they're fed a combination of silage and maybe some concentrate feed as well but there are exceptions to that where you'd have those feedlot cattle you're probably familiar in the states they're quite common to have big feed lots full of full of um beef beef animals where they're just fed concentrates and that's called a zero grazing where they don't graze grass at all there are some of those in ireland i've never been to one but a couple of my friends working in farm animal practice have been to a few they're not great there's a lot of antibiotic use there as well because it you know it's quite intensive and they're in small spaces together similar to the pigs and the poultry so I hope that doesn't start to expand. Well, yeah, because the government, they just love making, obviously, money and just bringing, you know, exporting, bringing revenue in and stuff like that. So, and I actually was listening to a podcast recently where they said, like, unfortunately, to be, if you're, if you want to look at what's most environmentally sustainable, it is factory farms because you don't need as much land and you don't need um you can basically control the conditions and use less water and yada 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 but weighing up what's environmentally sustainable versus what's morally right or you know two kind of separate issues um and but was there did you kind of like choose to stop eating beef had you decided at this point because <laughs> this is about your, your journey to veganism <laughs> did you decide at that point to, to stop eating beef or like beforehand did you kind of go do you know what? I'm gonna just give it all up yes yeah, so it was gradual at the start with the pork and then poultry and then the dairy was the big thing for me more so than the beef because back at this point I wasn't aware of the environmental impacts of the methane production of these animals but now that's very much a big reason for for being vegan for me but 
yeah, back then it was the dairy that really, that I didn't want to be consuming dairy. And I guess then the more time I spent with those animals, I just didn't want to eat them. So yeah, that kind of came in quick succession, the beef and dairy, eggs and everything. Yeah, I kind of stopped eating it all. So the dairy farm, I guess that reinforced the calf separation ethical issue for me because that was one of my jobs there was to watch the cow when she was calving and you let her lick the calf dry and then take the calf away and the calf would be fine because they I mean they're just born into the world they don't know what's going on but the cow would just stand first of all it was scary taking the calf away you'd have to run because she'd chase you like and um when you got outside of the gate then she just stand there and moo and moo and like for the whole day she would just stand looking out there so distressed and it broke my heart I hated doing that yeah the fact that that's just routine it's just not it's just not acceptable even if they're like male or female like they all get taken away and I know like they do that they do it sooner so that they don't bond because you know oh it's crueler to take the calf away but obviously if we weren't taking her milk which is designed for this calf to get to what 350 pound size in a few months like if we weren't um doing that we wouldn't have to take the calf from the cow in the first place oh but this is actually what turned me vegan was a friend telling me how she visited her friend's dairy farm and there was a calf on the ground um, who looked like death, basically. And she was like, oh, is he okay? And her friend is like, no, he's not taken to be- being taken away from his mom very well. And then Granny was like, oh, can we not do anything? Can we not take him home? And he was like, no, he probably just won't make it through the night. And then I was like, okay, that's an animal dying from me eating dairy. So it's not... <laughs> Vegans weren't crazy after all. Like, I can't be... I just I just couldn't do it. That is common practice. And obviously the cows would be drinking the milk. And yeah, as you said earlier, it's cheaper to give them formula. But I've also heard that, and I remember hearing cows, I think it's lowing as it's called, when they're call, when they're calling after them or something, when the, when the calves are taken and their voice would, would go sometimes because they're just mooing so much, which does break, yeah, does break your heart. And they do that every year. They take that a calf like every year from a cow just crazy to put her through the pregnancy and the birth just to take the calf away and then start all over again you know yeah. uh, and then the early the early lactation is so tough on her because she's producing huge amounts of milk so unnatural again genetic selection we've selected for the cows to be these turbo milking machines that they can produce enough milk for 10 calves. You know, they, they're producing so much milk and all their energy goes to producing milk. So they'd sooner deplete their own fat stores and energy stores just to push to get better, to get better milk. And they put all their energy into this, into producing milk, which is supposed to be for their calf, but isn't. There's a state, all cows enter an early lactation that's a negative energy balance where you have, no matter how much you feed them, it's not enough calories. So they're eating the maximum amount they can every day, but it's still not enough to feed themselves. So 
they they lose weight in that time a lot of weight and it's called unavoidable underfeeding and you know we're just kind of taught in college like oh yeah so this is dairy cows just have this like unavoidable underfeeding you physically can't feed them enough because their energy demand is sky high you know it's unnaturally high yeah yeah, they could eat all day and it wouldn't be enough and it causes a lot of problems you get kind of it's kind of you know like the ketone diet kind of thing it's kind of like that they go into a state of ketosis where they're producing ketones because there's not enough glucose left and it's cost it costs the farmers lots of money in like veterinary bills to treat it it is it is an issue in the dairy industry that negative energy balance in the dairy cows and the fact just that term unavoidable underfeeding and the way that's just so normalized within the profession and like oh yeah that's just the way it is like that shouldn't to me that shouldn't exist there shouldn't be a thing called unavoidable underfeeding that's outrageous like yeah and what is the story when people say if the cow isn't milked she'll get she'll get mastitis um well the cow will mastitis is a big problem in dairy cows but not for that reason and every cow every year is stopped that you stop milking her at 300 days so she'll dry up then for 65 days you know um, and that's in every species when the the young stops stops nursing so that's the same thing as you know stop being milked by the machine in a horse in a yo in a sow when they stop when they stop nursing because it's the sucking like that action of sucking that causes oxytocin release which causes more milk to be let down so when you stop that reflex that's like a a positive feedback loop so when you stop that reflex when you stop pulling on the teeth that inhibits oxytocin release and it stops milk production so that's how you actually stop lactation is just by stopping stopping the nursing or stopping the milking so Mm -hmm. that's not what causes the mastitis i'm glad you said that because i hear that a lot What causes it? Um, different things. There's like there can be contagious mastitis where there's bacteria on the milking on the milking line. The suction cups. Yeah, things. and they're passed yeah. from one cow to the next. Or um, environmental mastitis, typically from E. coli, which is in the feces. So it's from poor hygiene conditions, really, because their udders are huge. You know, they're so big, unnaturally big. Yeah. So they're so pendulous and they're they're down low and they're in the dirt and they're in the feces and that's when like uh, pathogens can get up there through the T canal. Like um, an E. coli mastitis is not a pretty sight and it can often result in death. And I've seen cows die from E. coli mastitis. It's horrific. They get very very sick. You know the udder will go purple and they'll go really cold and they'll lie down they won't want to get up and it's it's really serious and an e coli mastitis is caused basically just from living in their own feces and is it cheaper to have them to let them kind of just die or you know because i imagine it costs to euthanize them so i imagine pain relief is is given if, if anything is done is it in that kind of situation yeah, definitely. Um, you go out, you give them really strong antibiotics, which is controversial because they're antibiotics you want to be saving for human use and only used in animals when necessary. But it's very hard to see the cow like that and not give her anything and give her very strong anti-inflammatory pain relief. And you, a lot of the time you pump them 
with water as well just keep them hydrated and sometimes you might even amputate the teeth to try and let all that um infected milk out but I've seen that being done but I haven't done it myself wow and how what is the lifespan of a cow normally 20 to 30 years I think but yeah on average seven years i think yeah would be the average because their milk production their milk yield will drop and they won't be as fertile and be harder to get them in back in calf and once you start having those issues then they're they're cold like with the yos yeah and as so they're probably we haven't even got to the slaughterhouses yet oh my god do humans eat them or do they go for for pet food uh, they'd be sent to the to a normal factory yeah they just wouldn't be the best meat quality they wouldn't be as valuable as a beef animal and it's probably your mcdonald's burgers or something real processed um food um you've been in some slaughterhouses and I think an an issue because you sent me like a really cool case study well not cool but (laughs) good case study that you did about uh, religious slaughter Um, and I actually didn't know this was a thing halal and kosher in Ireland and to be honest really even before reading your study because I do avoid these things because they make me sad halal and kosher is supposed to be you know ethical and nice or whatever so I guess what was your kind of not your experience but what happens in slaughterhouses in Ireland with with religious slaughter yeah so I I'm talking about sheep here because that's the species that I've seen uh slaughtered by that method I was a big shock to me because I didn't know either that it went on I thought that that was something in like faraway lands you know I didn't think it was a thing and I also thought if it was that it was a very small percentage of the animal population I thought it was a very niche thing and but there are as far as I know five five factories that use religious slaughter for the sheep the main difference between religious slaughter and you know commercial normal slaughter is that there's no stunning so the animal isn't rendered unconscious prior to the throat being cut so they're still fully conscious that's one of the rules is that the animal has to be alive and so they don't like the animal to be unconscious first. So every other aspect of halal or kosher is really welfare friendly. Like they like the animal to be raised in certain conditions and it makes sense from a welfare point of view. But then to say then their next bit when it comes to the actual slaughter, it has to be done with a sharp knife. One single cut has to be as quick as possible. All of these things that make sense but then the animal has to be fully conscious. So mm. that's the main difference. So then what happens there is it's kind of like a, a conveyor belt where the sheep is put up onto it. There there are two men there. One holds the the head up and the other um, makes the cut and then drops then next. And it's just sheep after sheep cut, cut, maybe one every uh, 12 seconds I think was the statistic where I was and then by the time they get to the end of the conveyor belt they'll have lost consciousness and then they're hung up and exsanguinated so the blood is drained from them so yeah they're completely conscious when it happens and it's obviously really traumatic for them and you can see the sheep in the pen behind them they can see it and 
they're really distressed and they're running away and they're they obviously don't want to be brought up there but they're all caught in the end and and they don't vocalize or anything because their uh, trachea is cut so they don't make any noise but you their head just just drops down and after a few seconds their breathing will stop and their blinking will stop so it was it was pretty hard to see and when I when I was going in there the the veterinary inspector you know warned said oh hey we're going to watch religious slaughter halal slaughter now so just be aware of that and they none of them like it none of them want that to be happening you know no one in the factory wants that um and any any vet or any veterinary inspector i've spoken to is really against it and the veterinary inspector who was showing it to me was really against it too and after we went then to the processing area where all the lamb was being packaged and the vi said to me oh have a look at all those packages there and can't tell me how many of them say that that's halal slaughtered lamb and not a single one and these are going to these are going all up to all over ireland and exported and there'll be some say like they might want the liver or some specific part of the sheep and there'll be some animals that will go to to halal restaurants or whatever and so be sold as halal meat, but then the rest of it is just normal sheep, normal lamb. Okay, yeah, they just but it's not. There's no requirement to label it as such. And yeah, and you you think there should be? Oh, yeah. absolutely, people. Because I, I I think that's crazy that there's that that doesn't have to be labeled. You know, just from talking to people in there that the reason it's done, it's not because for religious reasons, because only the minority of it actually goes to those markets, but it's just because it's cheap. It's one less person to pay. If you were going to have to stone the animals, you'd pay someone to do that for the whole day. And it's quicker because you can process a sheep every 12 seconds. So that's more sheep in the day and that's more money. And does that happen? Does halal, I'm just ignorant on this now, does that also happen with, with cows as well is it every animal basically pigs cows there's a halal or kosher way of, of religious religious slaughter way of doing it uh cow, some cows as well yeah i think pigs i don't think pig, pork is eaten okay they're um, not, they don't yeah pork, of but um mm. but in cows there are some factories that that do it in cows as well now the factory i went to it the cows were stunned before slaughter but there are some only a, only a handful now that will that will slaughter cattle by that way and cattle take it longer to go unconscious as well because they have this like extra blood supply to the brain this vertebral artery so it takes them a bit longer to go unconscious um so I haven't seen that but a few of my friends did and they said it was awful so it takes them longer than sheep so once their neck is is slit because of the extra artery okay supplying the brain god and then i guess in other scenarios when they're stunned as far as i know do correct me if i'm wrong there's like a a, like a metal kind of rod that shoots out from a gun and goes like punches out and back in again into their into their brain and it's like only a certain depth so that doesn't kill them straight away is that kind of how it works? They go yeah, it's unconscious? A, a captive bolt. So it, it renders them unconscious for a certain period of time. So then they're bled, you know, they're, or they call it like they're sticking them is what you call it when you stick the knife in st- immediately after they're stunned. So they have to be stunned and checked that they're unconscious. So you check for that there's no corneal reflex, there's no blinking and there's no... Uh, rhythmic breathing so that's they're your two big indicators that they're unconscious and then they're they're hung up and then 
bled then. So then they ble- and they bleed to death then. That's how they die. That's how they're killed. Yeah. Okay. Um. Do you know anything about like workers in um in meat factories or anything or slaughterhouses? Um. Well, I met a few of them while I was there. Very busy. A, a lot of them were were foreign nationals. I I didn't meet any that were like speaking English on the floor there. I have I didn't interact much with them uh but they're yeah they're very busy and work they work really hard there and um one thing that the vi said was that sometimes the vis go around and inspect regularly that's the veterinary inspector to make sure everything's been done right and the vi did say oh sometimes you hear them whistling to each other to warn that you're coming so you're kind of wondering then like what's actually happening when they're not being inspected but like one thing I saw was that I I saw one animal not being stunned properly and the VI repeated made sure the stun was repeated it was repeated four times until the animal was properly stunned and then it was bled and then I was just there thinking um what would happen you know if we weren't there yeah they'd be strung up probably conscious still and you can understand that because you see the worker the stun the stunner and it's animal after animal and of course you just want to get them done you might have 10 left you just want to get them done and leave obviously I mean I would too so you can understand the frustration when if someone's coming along oh no do this one again you're you just be like oh would you just let me get on with it like I understand that you'd be so you'd be so immune to it as well it's like yeah because you have to protect yourself in a way like even you know if you're dealing with the climate crisis or even me in the supermarket the first few days I was like the dead chicken the dead lamb like having to hold them whole like the weight of this body of a chicken and now I just I have to not think about it because it is upsetting and like you do hear horrible stories of worker conditions as well um you know a lot of people in direct provision working in uh, meat factories and slaughterhouses you know not great pay and some of them having horrible ptsd when they come out because what they're doing is horrible like the energy it takes to kill an animal you know you exert calories digging up the garden but like to you know kill an animal and we'll move on to the parallels i guess to veterinary before we finish up because like as i said before going when you have to put a loved pet down a loved companion animal oh my god your heart so like I think people need to be aware that's and that's just what makes me so sad especially in the supermarket when you see people picking up like a box of like eight chicken legs and they just fling it into their trolley it's it's hard because I think if they knew this and if they'd seen what you've seen not everyone would be vegan but I do think people would just be more conscious you know and definitely not over consuming or waste I know is an issue as well so I guess how do you find then when it comes to euthanasia like how are you because obviously Obviously, you're vegan at this stage, had enough of it all, um, and then you have to put some someone's sick or old or, or you know something's not right their animal down. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? I would have thought I'd be crying all the time because I'm just a big crybaby that way. But um, do you like have to protect yourself in a way? Yeah, I do. To be honest, and um, maybe I I can just use an example maybe to illustrate it. Um, last week I uh, put down a, a donkey, and um, that had uh, end stage laminitis, which is a a disease in the hooves. So it was really bad that it couldn't it couldn't walk properly. It was on 
like double dose of pain relief, which was also an issue um, for the, you know, for the stomach and everything. But it couldn't even, it couldn't walk properly. And that's the hardest thing to see is when they're, they're struggling that way. And uh, sometimes it's a case of really having to talk to the owner that it's, this isn't okay. Trying to get that message across that you can't go on like that. And that, yeah, that euthanasia, it is sad at the time and you see the owner and obviously donkeys live for years and years so the owners will have had them for so long and and it was really sad and at the time I'm kind of preoccupied with doing the job properly and making sure I'm doing it properly as opposed I'm not thinking about the everything else don't really think about it but then afterwards I went away and as I was driving away I then I got upset you know um but you know it's the right thing to do I it was even more upsetting seeing the donkey in that in that way yeah like it's compassionate like there is it is different you know killing a, i don't know a lamb six months old that could live another how many years than killing you know euthanizing a donkey in pain that that has lived you know a happy life in a field um so how many years have you been vegan now since january 2017 cool and what has been like the fa- your favorite thing about it about the journey or you know what what excites you now I do you know I'll tell you what excited me I went to the tiny little mace across the road there and they had instead of just normal Albro soya they had the new Flavahin's oat barista I was like what and the dark chocolate burnville fingers I was like I'm getting myself a vegan haul from the tiny little mace oh my god so like how how has the journey kind of been for you now since and yeah that's exciting when you see new things like that you wouldn't have had the likes of that in 2017 but even the change yeah the change in that time has been amazing so the two the two most exciting things about it for me is first of all the different types of foods that I eat and the variety of foods that I eat and the new foods that I'm willing to try first before I was such a plain Jane like chicken and potatoes was my dinner you know all the time and now I eat such variety of food and I feel so much healthier and I just feel so good knowing that my diet is about more than just me and that it's making it uh, an impact and just for me that I'm that I'm so much healthier and I'm eating so many more foods and there's all these exciting recipes to try I love that and I also love when there's new vegan junk food products released <laughs> yes oh my god yes oh I am absolutely 100% junk food vegan I just love browsing the freezer aisles even at Tesco and like oh what do we have today or <laughs> in John's and when they have uh, the new ranges like the plantish or the wicked you know there's always uh, a new one now lately it's just brilliant yeah mm-hmm. the everything is just so plentiful but you're also into sustainable food in general as well aren't you so like either are, are there any other kind of eco things that you um incorporate into your life that listeners could take a, a leaf from uh yeah so before I went vegan I wasn't that into you know I didn't know much I was just ignorant about the environment and eco living and then I got way more into it in the past few years and I tried to reduce my plastic waste you know limit that as much as possible and buy from 
uh, zero waste shops. And one thing uh, that I would do is I have, you know, the the wraps. You can get the beeswax ones, but then you can get the vegan ones is instead of just yeah. foil to wrap your sandwiches in. And um, yeah, reusable straws and a keep cup and my bamboo toothbrush and uh, plastic-free toothpaste, all those like bathroom bathroom essentials the real yeah the real easy swaps yeah like my shampoo bars and all that I love having walking into my bathroom and there being no plastic and like yes yeah it's but there's something like aesthetic about it as well I mean if you're relatively yeah tidy because I can absolutely make a mess in my shampoo bar if I leave it in the wrong place then melt and I'm like oh like no just gloop I'm washing my hair with gloop now but um, yeah it can look really nice and aesthetic and you don't have them crashing to the shower floor all the time exactly. so that's cool all those other little swaps and how do your are, are your family kind of okay or your friends or people around you were they kind of okay of your transition did they tease you at all or oh yeah yes. <laughs> my mom is really reducing her meat consumption and she's doing meat free Mondays and she really loves like listening to me and she's she's really trying but you know like at the same time setting her ways and um, oh yeah and then my dad just slags me constantly and if he ever is eating a steak he's like no need to remember you used to love steak like it's not mad that you won't eat that there now <laughs> you know and I'm like yes dad <laughs> <laughs> sit down here now watch dominion with me <laughs> um yeah, I think that's like, a, I don't know, a fatherly humour or something. Did you ever eat fish? I actually never liked fish. So that was just a non-issue for me, I guess. Yeah. I just never ate it. I never liked yeah. it as a child or anything. Like. Yeah, I was actually the exact same. Maybe tuna, but wasn't my favourite. Like Nutella sandwich any day over that. Um, poor tuna. But um, so that is amazing. Oh my God, Neve, we've covered... <laughs> so much before we go we'll do random questions so I'm gonna make them all random one more time because I think they're the same for my last interviewee and just in case people think this is rigged <laughs> so rigged <laughs> pick a letter between a and z pick a letter between one and ten that's what I nearly said there I'll pick j j your question is three things you would bring to a desert island. You know, this I'm so oh, it's classic that I would ask the vegan this, isn't it? Because the vegan is the one who, when you go vegan, you are your chances of going to a desert island increase by like six million percent. So when you land on this desert island, uh, what would you bring with you, Neve? What would I bring? Um, at the moment, I'd have to bring my Biscoff spread. I don't know if you've had it. You know, the spread of the biscuit. My housemate Katie is obsessed. Yes, yes, yes. That's just the first thing that sprung to mind there. <laughs> Second, I think I'd have to bring a horse just for company. They're the best company. Yeah, that would that would keep me going. I guess. Um I don't think the horse would eat biscuit spread, so maybe I'll bring I'll bring um some carrots and plenty of horse feed. Yeah. Ah, you're so good. So you can share the carrots and the horse will have the, the feed. Amazing. And I'll skip the question of would you eat animals in a desert island? Because it's just not going to happen. Like, no, you're not Tom Hanks. It's not going to happen. Uh, next letter. Or. Choose three well-known, alive or dead, people to have at a dinner party. Dinner party. Um, 
I would love to have Matthew Walker, the author of Why We Sleep. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Um, It's just a book I read recently and it was mind-boggling and really eye-opening and I just have such admiration for him. So I'd like to have Matthew Walker. Um, He's a neuroscientist, I think. And I would also like to have uh, Celia Marr. She's a, a really cool vet in the UK who I... You know, like just she's just goals. <laughs> um, oh, cool! Yeah, someone I really look up to in the veterinary profession. Am I allowed a family member? Is there no? Yeah, I will give you a family member. I'll bring my mom as well because oh. she deserves a nice dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it! Um, you're getting the question. The threes, three threes, three threes, three things. Um, so final letter. We do one more. Okay, here we go. G. G G G for giant sequoia tree. Oh, give us a book recommendation, which you were just kind of talking about a book. But aside from the book you already mentioned, another book recommendation attached is one I read recently as well. I just read random books. <laughs> um, it's about attachment styles in relationships, and it's really interesting and really beneficial for anyone in their current relationship or just looking at their overall kind of history it's really interesting you learn a lot about yourself I think so I actually can't remember the name of the authors I think there's two authors but it's called Attached amazing I will link those in the show notes and on those eclectic um notes to finish on Neve. thank you so much for giving me all this time on a day where you did surgery on a dog on a cat and helped the donkey with the scratching problem you're probably wrecked and need dinner I'm so sorry for keeping you but I really appreciate all this energy um that you've given me and the time uh, to go through everything like thank you so so much really really appreciate it not at all Tara it's such a pleasure thanks so much for chatting to me okay and I'm back. I hope you guys are okay. That was a bit tough to listen to and to edit. So let's get into what we can do, okay? So obviously, the first thing we want to suggest is, if you're not already, go vegan. Or at least try to eat as plant-based as you can as much as possible. Um, If you were to be vegan for one month, according to a vegan calculator online, you would save 30 animals from being eaten. You would save 281 kilograms of CO2. You would save 278 square metres of forest. You would save 621 kilograms of grain. And you could save 126,738 litres of water if you went vegan for one month. And even if the animals are brought up in the most lovely way and they live their full lifespan of 30 years, they all end up in the same place, which is a slaughterhouse. And if you have to sign an NDA to go into a processing plant or a slaughterhouse, it's not for marketing reasons. It's not for you to steal ingredients like you would be signing an NDA to go on Coca-Cola. It's because if people shared what went on behind those metal doors, no one would be happy with it. And no one should be happy with it because it's not okay. So on top of the environmental aspect, we really need to look at what are we doing that's needlessly wrong 
and what can be done to prevent that. So your money matters, unfortunately, a lot in this capitalist society. So vote with your money buying um, vegan products or diverting that money away from, from these huge corporations. If you were to go vegan, it is one of the biggest things that you can do to help your impact on the planet and you're not funding this kind of acts of violence. Veganism is also equated to emissions from travelling a lot. 14.5 to 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions comes from animal agriculture, which is more than the combined exhaust of all travel, including planes. And if you look at bottom trawling emissions alone, bottom trawling emissions are more than the entire aviation industry. So... If you can avoid fish, avoid eating animals where you can and and animal secretions, that would be one of the great things that you can do. Now, after that, we need system change, okay? On top of individual change, you know, the little ripples you spread out in your friend groups and your family groups and, and online and everywhere is so important, but we also need to be working top down. So if you want to get into policy, politics or law, absolutely do that. But a lot of us don't, I'm not in that field. So many people are not in that field. We need to put pressure on from the outside for the policy change to happen. And that comes with protest. So join a local protest group. There's loads of different groups that you can join. I'm with Animal Rebellion and their specific demand is trans- is to transition to a plant-based food system and justly transition. I really want to echo that I have nothing personally against farmers here. There's such a deep kind of entrenched cognitive kind of um belief that we we all subscribe to um growing up that this is how it's done and this is what's normal and also farmers are also suffering in this system the hours that they work the money that they earn it's not sustainable and constantly the government are coming out with the the new cap not and then this isn't the government but the, the eu has this new common agricultural policy they're absolutely just encouraging farms to expand 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 it's all about the the size of your farm and just g- getting it bigger it's not about sustainability it's not about supporting small organic growers of vegetables and grains they're really being left shorthanded and farmers themselves have there's no body after being set up to help them transition to justly transition away from intensive farming that's destructive to the planet so these are things that need to be lobbied for need to be protest for so join your local farmer protest groups join your local vegan activist animal rights groups NARA National Animal Rights Association they're brilliant when they're like Laura, the person who runs it, has done so much for animal rights, getting fur farming banned. Now they're working on banning hair coursing. There is live export protests There's um, that you can attend. And yeah, I'm with Animal Rebellion. So you can, any of these groups, find them on social media, send them a message being like, hey, I'm interested in joining. And they'll let you know then how to be involved. I know with NARA, I know with Animal Rebellion. You just show up to a meeting, you're there, you show up to the protests that they have every week. So being active is so important because without direct action and being disruptive or handing out leaflets, like this all matters so much. And then of course there's petitions. So I'll link any petitions that I find in the show notes as I'm finding them. Just the one specific that I know is out there. There is a pig farm being proposed in Cork that all the local residents have put in appeal against because 
because it will be so detrimental to the air quality, the water quality in the area, the pollution um, and the scale of it. Again, we do not need these huge, crazily intensive pig farms. It's just not needed. That petition is to stop the proposed development of Dara Farms pig factory expansion. Um, so please sign that. There is also a Irish journalism website called noteworthy.ie and they do investigative journalism and they fundraise, they crowdfund to research into various topics, anything from um, mother and baby homes to the housing crisis and a lot of environmental issues and you can specifically find any of their um their topics that they want to crowdfund and research for and you can read the articles that they already have published which is a lot that's one thing you can do with money if you have spare funds that you can part with and another thing that you can do with any spare funds you may have is support um animal sanctuaries so these places are really important in showing people the personalities that animals have and that they are not commodities or objects to be used, but they are beings that deserve to live out their lives to their fullest that they can. So there's lots of vegan um, animal sanctuaries that you can support in Ireland. Eden Farmed Animal Sanctuary is one that's in Meath. There's also Little Ones Micro Sanctuary. So they look after lots of chickens and rabbits and there is Hearthstone, which is in Sligo. And I think it's Hearthstone that is trying to fundraise for some extra land at the moment as well. And then there's Back Into Daylight Animal Sanctuary. So these are just four examples of sanctuaries in Ireland that you can directly support. And wherever in the world you're listening to, if it's in the UK or America, Canada, there are sanctuaries that you can support and these help rescue animals directly from the exploitative systems of the animal agricultural industry continuing to educate yourself I think is another really important thing I have friends that when they find out I went vegan were like oh yeah I was vegan for a little while but I didn't I didn't keep up with it because of this that or the other honestly the only reason I was able to stick with it is for some reason after Grania told me what she did about the cow on her friend's farm I couldn't sleep well that night something was niggling at me and I just went right I'll just look into it and that's when I went down this rabbit hole of documentaries and books and now I'm like just consuming podcasts about it all the time and just this absorption of information and education is my armor it's like I know I'm doing the right thing because I'm just always educating myself as much as I possibly can and yep there's there's loads of things that uh, loads of resources that I think you can uh, avail of other podcasts and yeah documentaries are a big ones so just keep learning and don't be afraid if if something if you have a feeling that you're doing something or supporting something that isn't right or there's probably something wrong with it don't look away I used to look away and I'm sorry that I did to be honest so look into it find out what's happening and make an informed decision I think if if everyone was just informed and decisions were made that way it would be so much better 
So they're my couple of suggestions. The climate issue, the climate crisis, as Zach said in a previous episode, isn't a scientific one. It's a political one. Politics have a lot to play here. There's a lot of big agri people that are profiting. The top 1% own 70% of all farmland. And Ireland has 94% of our agricultural land is used for animal farming. And it's 4 million hectares that is how much land that is being used here so if we start eating more plants in our diet and needing less land imagine the things we can do restoring that land imagine the nature havens the the biodiversity that we could support the parks the streams and the rivers of fresh air like hearing the birds, no matter where you are in the country, not not just in the countryside, but in the city as well. Like all of the things that could happen if we had more land. That's oh, that's just amazing. And not and knowing you're not supporting a staff member in a pig factory smacking a baby pig's head off a wall to kill it to put it out of its misery. You know that I just so make informed decisions. Educate yourself. And yeah, there's a couple of suggestions. Take from that what you will. Let me know if you've any criticisms, if you've any um, suggestions. Get in touch. I can share them on my social media. There's also um, a website that you can check out that I'm going to put all the show notes up on as well. If you can't click on the links properly in whatever podcast platform you're listening on, you'll find them on bookofleaspodcast.com. And please share, rate, review, subscribe. And now go have a cup of tea. A nice cup of tea drop of oat milk and let's work on this problem together okay (laughs) we can do this so that is it i love you all so much thank you so much for listening oh my god i'm so sorry it's a bit of a long one but look sure we're here now and i hope you have a wonderful evening a wonderful monday and i will talk to you in two weeks time take care guys all the best bye